everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're addressing the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as exploring together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. This Tuesday, we'll be holding a great event in Matan in honor of our 100th episode on Vayakel Pekude coming up soon. I will be schmoozing with Dr. L. Ziegler about teaching Tanakh today. If you're hearing this before Tuesday, come and be part of our live audience. For details, see the website or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Rashat Tetzaveh's main focus is the priestly garments, the breastpiece, the choshen, the ephod, a robe, the me'il, a fringed tunic, headdress, mitznefet, and the sash. After these pieces are detailed, which are placed on the high priest, which is eight of them, and which on the regular priests, Aaron and his sons are robed, that is, they are dressed and prepared for their duties. Instructions are relayed for the inauguration ceremony of the priests, but this ceremony only takes place in the book of Vayikra, chapters 8 and 9. This ceremony combines animal and meal offerings, washing the body, and robing them. The Parsha ends with the building details of the incense altar, the Mizbech HaKtorit, which is really part of a longer section that follows and that is included in Parshat Kitisa. Today, Rabbanit Adina Sternberg and I will be speaking about the role of the Kohanim and their garments. Adina joined me for episode 70 for Parshat Ekev and episode 43 for Parshat Tetzaveh last year. Adina is a longtime lecturer at Matan and is currently taking part in Matan's first cohort of the Kitvuni Fellowship, which was created to promote the publication of a high-level Torah scholarship by women. The initiative provides female Torah scholars with the support necessary to facilitate their ability and complete a book in a field of Torah scholarship. Adina is writing a fascinating book on various dimensions of the holidays and how they are imported into our modern observance of them. Adina was a student in Matan's Hilchata program, and she is also a lecturer in the Efrata College and in the, at the Midrashah at Barilan University. Adina, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Adina, I always like to involve you in like the the rough topics, right? So we're here today to talk about uh, Kohanim, to talk about the priests. I'll keep calling them Kohanim from now on, okay? So we did that, that translation, but that's what we're going to call them today for our, our comfort. And... This is sort of, I would say, a first window into episodes we'll be doing on Vaikra, where I really want to try and go deep on a lot of these ideas that seem really far removed from our modern lives. And this this parasha is really Kohen-focused. So a lot of it is in theory at the moment. It's not yet going to be uh, actively followed. And really what occupies a lot of the commentators' minds is that it's actually the only parasha in the Torah that Moshe isn't even mentioned in it, meaning he has no part in this parasha. It's the only one. Uh, and many of the parashanim fascinatingly actually think that it's in order to give his brother Aharon, his real moment in the spotlight. Uh, And that while Moshe is sort of always there, and there are these brothers who largely don't have any sibling rivalry, as we saw earlier in Sefer Beishit, in this parasha, it's really the Aharon show and his sons. And so we take a sort of a little break from building different ornaments in the Mishkan, and we focus almost exclusively on the clothing of the Kohanim. So I wanted us to really dive deeper into this idea today 
about the meaning. Why why so much focus on the clothing koanim and what do the details that are provided about their clothing teach us about ideas that are much broader about either the way we wear clothing or the role itself of, of the koanim. So I guess I, I want to start from this idea about, about the clothes themselves. Well, actually, even before we look at the psukim themselves and try to derive from there what the Torah is trying to tell us about clothes, I think we also have our uh, own ideas of the purpose of clothes and why we wear clothes and why we wear different kinds of clothes. I mean, when we see someone wearing pajamas versus someone wearing a suit and a tie, this gives us different messages. We look at the people differently. We perceive them differently. We, we treat them differently. Meaning clothes, in a sense, is a way we deliver who we are and the impression we're trying to create in other people. Now, if we look in the Psukim in the Torah, when it talks about the clothing, it says, Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. So we have this idea of dignity because when people wear special clothes, we honor them. When I hear the word lechavod, I also don't think of only about the honor of Aaron himself, but also the honor of God, because kvod Hashem appears throughout the books of Shemot and B'midbar a lot as a representation of Hashem. So there's some kind of this kavod of God that he gives to man, and we embody it in our clothes and to bring some kind of dignity to the people, to the job, to the whole structure of Kehuna and Mishkan and serving God. But there's also Tiferet. So the, the translation here is a certain kind of adornment, right? Which is kind of to make you pretty. But I think the word Tiferet also comes from or connects to the Hebrew word Pe'er, which can be glory and prettiness and uh, being beautiful. But we also know that the tops of the trees in Hebrew are called Pe'erot. It's a top, like something that's elevated. So the clothes aren't only pretty or to dignify, but they have some kind of elevation in them. I think that's also true about us. We feel differently when we're wearing pajamas and we're wearing Shabbos clothes. When we're wearing pajamas, we sort of like slump around and feel casual and feel comfortable. But when we're wearing Shabbos clothes or we're wearing dress clothes, or wearing suit and a tie, it, it makes us different people. It causes us to act differently. It elevates us. It brings us somewhere else. I think also that it's really important to bring us back to the original story of the creation of man and woman, because that in that episode, it's a real event when they get clothing. You know, first they cover themselves up as a result of their sin, which is an interesting question, why they felt the need to cover. But ultimately, God grants them their 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 kotnot or, meaning he grants them some sort of of covering. And that covering there, first of all, separates man from animal in the most basic sense, right? That's, you know, whenever I see today people dressing up their animals, there's a part of me that has like an internal kvetch because I feel that there's a little bit of a conflation there between between animals and humans sometimes. Um, but but in addition to that, it also, as you said, it, it really honors man. And it also seems to be not an optional 
aspect of creation, meaning God gave it to them as sort of a completion of the act of creation. And so clothing has really this primal, as you said, it really hits to the core of who we are. It impacts the way we behave. Um, you know, I, I think about this all the time, definitely in terms of you know, how much do you force children to get dressed in different scenarios? And and in a different situation, I think about it a lot when I go to weddings, let's say in Israel, where people tend to dress down and I really appreciate the lack of pressure to show up in fancy clothing. But sometimes I feel that it undermines an event, meaning sometimes in order to show our deep respect for an event, we need to show it on the outside and show that that we are respecting the event by by showing up in our most respectful garb, right? With that kavod and that tiferet. And so I think that we intuit a lot of this. You know, this is something that we we experience every day in terms of how we present our, ourselves to the world. And I think it's just really interesting that God says it's almost the the first point that God focuses on regarding the Kohanim, meaning we've, we've met Kohanim until now, but the first thing we learn about for them is how they're supposed to dress. It's it's not their duties. It's how they're supposed to physically be presented. But that's sort of the first layer upon which we focus our attention. It's interesting because sometimes it feels like the clothes is what makes a man. But when you look throughout Tetzaveh, sometimes it feels like the clothes actually turn the Kohanim into a kind of a vessel. Just like we're putting things in the mm-hmm. Mishkan, we're also putting things on the Kohanim. Like we're to say that we're putting on them clothes as an adornment sometimes makes you feel like a prize wife where you put on her the jewels, where she's not actually a person, but she's a vessel to show off the wealth of her husband or whoever. So in a sense, also the Kohanim or Zera is a vessel as something that you make pretty because it's going to serve, right? Just like you carve all kinds of beautiful carvings into the menorah, you also put these carved things on the Kohanim themselves. So on one hand, it connects to Bereshit and tells us, yeah, this is what makes man different than animal. This is what makes man special. It comes together also with knowledge, meaning the eating from the tree of, of, of knowledge, or however we explain it's a that it comes together with wearing clothes. But here, in a sense, the clothes both define how we treat the Kohanim and how the Kohanim perceives themselves and look at themselves and look at their job. But it also says, you know what, you're also a vessel here. You're something we're putting on clothes and you're now here in a sense, a little bit like the Mizbeach, the altar and the menorah. And like you're one of the vessels inside of Mishkdash because you're serving just like we use them to serve God. We're actually using you also to serve God. So the clothes both make you a man, but also put you in a certain kind of role and in a certain place and define who and what you are also for other purposes. I'll just say in a sense, wearing a uniform, it makes you uniform, meaning it takes away a bit of your identity, about your speciality, about your special uh, characteristics, because it gives you a role and says, okay, now that's who you are. That defines you without your all your self-definitions, which you might think make you special and unique 
etc. Okay, I think that's an amazing point. You're saying that on one hand, uh, clothing is a deeply personalizing tool of self-expression. On the other hand, it reminds us that the Kohanim are functionaries. They have a function in the Mishkan, just like the Mizbech and just like the the other ornaments and the Minorah. And, and I think that's a, an amazing point because it explains why this chapter is here. It explains why after we've described all the ornaments themselves and all the vessels we built in the Mizbech, why now we're speaking about the Kohanim's clothing? Because on one hand, it's a unique aspect of what Kohanim wear. On the other hand, it's what, as you said, uniforms them among the other servants in the Mishkan. I would just add one other thing, which uh, I believe I saw uh, in Leon Cass's commentary, that one of the surprising emphases we see, and this goes back to sort of the personalized human aspect of clothing, but one of the emphases we see is on the fact that the Kohanim had to have undergarments, which you would kind of think is not so important, or if they have to have them, we don't have to talk about them. I mean, it seems much more regal and royal to talk about the headdresses they had or the sashes or the external robes, but there's this continuing emphasis on their on their underrobes. We also saw it right after the Aseret HaDibrot, the Ten Commandments, where they had to, you know, make sure that they, when they were walking up the, the ramp, that also you wouldn't see beneath their clothing. And this was just a piece that kind of blew me away, so I wanted to share it with our audience, which is that we have to remember that in the ancient world, priests in many cultures wore barely any clothing, which is such a contrast to everything we're seeing in this week's Parsha. They were they were almost naked. You could think even about stereotypical images you might have in your mind of like Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, but a lot of those are very, very accurate. And they would wear barely any clothing. And one of the reasons that that was the case is because a lot of the ritual worship that was done was highly sexualized, and it would involve sometimes uh, sexual behaviors of the priests with the people bringing sacrifices. I'll use the word orgy. Like that was a very common practice in a lot of these ancient worlds that there was to combine sort of sexual height with their religious fervor. The Torah completely and totally separates those realms. And one of the fascinating ways it does that through the expression of clothing is that it emphasizes that the Kohanim have to be wearing undergarments at all times. And this point, I think, is really interesting because it also, if we could talk about you know, how we import these ideas into our modern lives, is that it comes back to this discussion about how much of sniut for men and women, how much of it is rooted in self-respect, or as you said earlier, how we present ourselves to society, and how much is it rooted in acknowledging the natural uh, sexual aspects of human beings and wanting to slightly uh, mitigate or neutralize that on a daily functioning basis. And so the answer here would be that it clearly is both. It's really but let's not pretend that there isn't an additional dimension that exists even among the Kohanim and that too we want to slightly neutralize because this simply isn't the right setting for any of that. Mm-hmm. This actually connects to two things that entered my mind as you were speaking. The first one is even though we might like not like this, but this may be also an explanation why all the Kohanim are male, to sort of separate mm. the men and the women in this holy place as an, a response to what would happen in the other temples where the sexuality was a main part of serving God. And another thought I had, especially now in the post-corona uh, time, a lot of times you see like pictures on Facebook or on the internet where you can see people who are doing a Zoom 
and their top part of their body is a suit and a tie, and they're wearing shorts on, on their bottom part, because that's what you don't see. So there's certain thought, like I can represent myself as something, and it's only important what people on the outside, how they see me, and it doesn't matter how I perceive myself. And actually, the emphasis on the undergarments sort of says, you know, what you wear is important also to you. What you're wearing and how you get dressed, even the parts that the people don't see, that's also an important way of how you conduct yourself in the world. And if your top half is a suit and a tie and your bottom half is uh, running shorts, you can't be in a good place. And in order to serve God, it has to be not only what you show outside, but also how you wear your clothes towards yourself, what you understand about the clothes that you're wearing. So I want to get sort of deeper on this question about why we have Kohanim. We're going to explore it more in really Sefer Kohanim, which is going to be in Sefer Vaikra. But this idea of having these representatives, or are they representatives? What What is the role of the Kohen? Is it sort of just a perfunctory role that we need somebody who is going to remain pure and separate, who will be able to function in the Mikdash? Or... Do the Kohanim somehow represent us? What, what What's the relationship between the Kohanim and, and the people themselves? And that's sort of a question I would want to start exploring today that I imagine in the future we'll, we'll continue exploring. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I'll start with the fact that we supposedly are consecrating the Kohanim in this parasha, parasha Tetzaveh, but we do see both Kohanim and representatives in previous parashot. When we go back to uh, Yitro and we talk about Mamad Har Sinai, so God warns Moshe and he says, you need to be careful, tell the people that they shouldn't, uh, you need to set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it so people don't go up and uh, up onto the mountain. And then it says, you need to warn the people and the priests that they don't break through to come up to Hashem. So we see that we already have priests. Who are these priests and what do they do? We don't know. But there's this, stratum, this group of people that we consider priests. In Parshat Mishpatim, at the end, we see that they're bringing sacrifices, and it says, They sent the young ones of the people of Israel. Are these the Kohanim? Are these servants who serve the people and serve God? It's not quite clear, but not everybody can bring the korbanot, not everybody can sacrifice, so we're going to have representatives to do it. But I think it's not only representatives. I think that naturally we're looking for people to look up to, meaning in a sense we want these representatives to sort of act out for us a certain ideal. So even if we can't be holy all the time, we want to have this group of people who represent us and take upon themselves to be holy. And they... They, they won't only represent us in terms of being those who are holy for us, but they also set an ideal that we can strive to, to, to match. We can look up to them and try to become holier. Like they, they kind of set an ideal and give us the option to look up to them. In, in these past weeks, we've, uh, the Daf Yomi have been learning Masechet Nazir. And the Nazarite has a lot of things that he's very similar to a Kohen. And the sort of the Nazarite law gives 
the regular person is an opportunity to kind of be a Kohen for a certain amount of time. It doesn't have to be a Kohen throughout his whole life, but it gives us the option of, yes, you're looking up to the Kohanim and you can also take this idea and put it into your own life for a certain amount of time, for a longer amount, shorter amount. But sometimes we want those people that will look up to them and that will set an ideal, even if we don't have to do that on our own the whole time. It gives us a way of having something to strive, even if we don't do it 100% of the time. Okay, so you're saying that they they sort of represent an ideal that we can't necessarily actualize in our life on a daily basis, but they serve as an example of that. I, th- I think a, a very complimentary idea, I believe I saw it in Rabbi Sachs's really astounding introduction to the book of Vayikra, which I'm sort of studying at the moment. And he says that, he uses this idea of the routinizing of charisma, which he takes from uh, from Max Weber. And he says that what's the significance of the sort of the office of the Kohen is that we take this idea idea of religious charisma and we give it an official job with rules and codes of dress because that's an energy or a a movement in the world that everybody experiences it. But in order to make it sort of a mainstay in the world, it has to be made into some sort of official job. I mean, I have to say that I can imagine for British people, I'm saying this seriously, there's something much more tangible about these ideas. I really believe that when you have like the idea of a monarch in front of you. Uh, For some reason in the past few, I would say the past year, I've been reading so many books that take place in Britain and, and seen some really, really quality British shows. And I feel like a lot of these ideas have become much clearer, meaning the the real power of the investiture of an office. And these are things that we don't have that much glory sort of that is left in a lot of our political system. And there's sort of like the last the last pieces of it come through sort of through, through the monarchy. So we speak about this idea of routinizing uh, charisma. And that that really enables, I would say, as you said before, this kavod and tiferet, it really reflects, as you said, the beauty of God. He continues at some point and says, if the Kohen represented the routinization of charisma, Judaism, through its halachic sanctification of everyday life, eventually became the charismatization of routine. Meaning, we weren't, when we don't continually have the the Kohanim and the Mikdash, eventually the the actual fulfillment of halacha it takes our regular daily routine and infuses it with something that is far higher. So if we could think about it as sort of a scaffolding idea, you mentioned that word before, you have the Kohen who takes this charisma and and puts it into an office. And when we don't have a Kohen, we essentially take our daily routine and make it more formalized through our rules and rituals and halacha and essentially elevate that. So that's just sort of coming to speak about this idea of what happens when we don't have the Kohen. But that idea, I think, of looking at the Kohanim as people, as you said, on one hand, sort of show us the level that we can we can reach, right? We can aspire to this kind of purified life that focuses purely on God. And and to say it somewhat differently is that we take this, I would say, this divine charisma or this spiritual energy in the world and sort of uh, focus it into this particular office. And that office enables us to keep that representation of that in the world in a way that's sort of clear and regulated in the role of the Kohanim. In a sense, kind of the question is how much we're expecting of people to be on a high spiritual level with a sort of spiritual tension throughout their whole life. So what what I kind of feel that the Torah kind of says, you know what, we want the regular people to live a regular life that has a lacha and it gives it uh, gives this life significance and meaning. But we'll have other people living on this high spiritual tension all the time. 
And it, sometimes I think about it is that nowadays people don't like either of them. On one hand, people will complain, how come we don't have everyone is Kohanim? Everyone should be a Kohen. Why can't we all have the same mitzvot, okay? And on the other hand, they'll be very upset that Kohanim have all these special mitzvot. Like, what? They can't marry a divorced woman? That's not good. That's not fair, whatever. So we sort of kind of try to say we're all equal. We're all should be Kohanim, but all the Kohanim should be regular people. We we don't like this idea of having some people with more mitzvot, with more demands, with a higher spiritual tension in their life. I think in a sense, it kind of threatens us because when there's someone who's more holy than us, that means that we're less holy Mm -hmm. and we all want to be holy. We all want to be holy. But the Torah says, you know, it's okay that not everybody is on the same spiritual level. It's okay to have someone to look up to and to aspire, even if I don't demand it of everybody. I think also, ultimately, if people would ask themselves honestly, they're kind of relieved, right? If I could take a modern example, as you know, we don't have Kohanim, but even, you know, people who are Lashay Yeshiva or people who are spending all of their time, and I'm going to use that parallel, okay? Because that's, I think it's the best one we have today. But people who are spending all their time in Limut Torah, uh, in Torah learning, and it's it's not if we could be if people are honest with themselves people don't really necessarily want to stay there you know i work in a midrash i work in a place of religious intensity and you, you know students have to ask themselves this question whether they're going to continue and stay in another year and for a lot of them it says I, i've had enough meaning i don't i don't want to be here anymore am i supposed to feel bad that i don't want to be here anymore anymore and the answer in i think the relatively open-minded place that i work in is of course not of course that's okay right so now now it's your time to go and you need to now go and continue on with your life and you're going to take all these things you've learned and you're going to cultivate them and and grow with them as you grow but but as you said so well not everybody's meant to do that and and that's fine not everybody has the the temperament or the internal space or is built to to continue in that kind of life and so i think that if people were honest with themselves um, you know, on one hand, we don't like to feel less than. On the other hand, I think a lot of us know that we're not built for that kind of lifestyle, and, and that's okay. And we need to be careful not to be threatened by those who are, yeah. because that's part of the problem. With those, we sort of sometimes people have a certain kind of antagonism towards those people who dedicate their life to Torah, might even say, you don't do anything real. You don't have a real job. You don't do mm-hmm. anything constructive because they feel threatened because they don't want to feel less. So, so either they'll go around feeling, you know, guilt because all they do is, you know, a doctor or a teacher or work in high tech, right? Because they're not doing right. something really spiritual and, and high Torah learning. Or what they'll do is they'll kind of take away from the kavod and tifelet of those who are more spiritual and, and, and that way sort of feel that it doesn't threaten them. But I think the Torah says that it's okay, that it's okay that we have different people at different levels and we'll even designate different people to these different levels. And we'll say, we want some of you to be Kohanim and we want the rest of you not to be Kohanim. And it's and we'll give you this Nazarite or other methods of becoming more for those who want, but without forcing it. I think there's something very even healthy about it. Okay, so I agree with that point, but 
I think our last question that I want to try and tackle in today's conversation is that I agree with that point, but what about the idea of being a mamlechet koanim vegoi kadosh? Meaning if we're saying that we have different levels of society and we're, we don't want everybody to strive to be the active koanim, so what do we do with this phrase of, of that essentially want to establish a, a kingdom of priests? What do you make of that? One very interesting thing I've noticed is I, I really like this concept of mamlechet because one of the things that I noticed is that when you look at Mamad Hal Sinai, you see that this is sort of a, a, a promise that the people were given, that they will become a Mamlechet Kohanim Vegoi Kedosh. But then you look at the context, and together with Mamlechet Kohanim and Goi Kedosh, we also have Amsgula. So we have these three uh, components Mamlechet Kohanim, Sgula, and Kedosh. And then if you look and see, you go out through the Tanakh in Sefer Dvarim, this idea comes back three more times. Ki'am kadosh etal Hashem Elohecha, whatever, liot lo le'am sgula. And that's in Dvarim, Perak Zayin. And then in Perak Yudalet, it says again, ki'am kadosh etal Hashem Elohecha, etc. Uvecha bachar Hashem liot lo le'am sgula. And then again in Dvarim Kafla, like three times these concepts come back. But in all three times, only two components come back. Sgula, which is a, like a treasure that we're God's treasure, and Am Kadosh, that we're all holy. But the concept of Mamlechet Kohanim kind of got lost. Hmm. It, it, it went away. So what does this mean? That God had an ideal that will be all Kohanim, but we can't live up to this ideal? That's, a, that's an option. Meaning there's an option that God really wanted us all to be on a very high spiritual level, and we uh, messed it up. And so he said, you know what, let's start with being sgulav, being a treasure, and being kadash. Start with being holy. You don't always have to be priests. That's an option. I, I have a different idea or a similar idea, but not exactly the same thing. And that is that the concept of Am Yisrael being kohanim does come back. It comes back in Yishayahu. Yeshayahu says that in the in the future, the Amduzarim Viraudsonchem, Uvne Nehari Karichem Vikornichem, strangers shall stand and pasture your flocks, aliens shall be your plowmen and vine trimmers. So you will become the priests of the Lords and termed servants of our God, etc. So what can we see from here? Is it the idea of Kohanim? keeps, let's just say this, the title of Kohanim, keeps this idea of different levels. But the point is not that all Am Yisrael should be at the same level, but that Am Yisrael will serve as a Kohanim for the rest of the world. Meaning when God says you're going to be Mamlechet Kohanim, what he's saying is you will be representatives. You will be the elevated stratum towards the rest of the world. What I want is a nation that can be holy and the rest of the world, even though I don't expect of the rest of the world to do all the commandments and to have all the mitzvot, I have a very, I have lower expectations, but I want them to be able to see a whole nation that's dedicating to serving God. And I want you to be in that place. Now, even within that nation, you can have different levels and you can have different jobs and uh, job descriptions. But as a nation, you can be in this place of representing the world towards God and being elevated from the rest of the world and giving them something to look up to. 
Problem is, <laughs> right after we were told this, we had Cheta Egel and we sort of messed up. And so God said, you know what? Before you become representatives for the rest of the world, because before I expect you to uh, be better than everybody else or to be elevated or for people to look up to you, let's start on working on yourselves. Let's make sure that you're Kedoshim, that you're doing things the right way. And then later on, we can go back to this idea of the rest of the world being able to use you as a means of getting closer to God, as a means of something to aspire to, as something to look up to. But Sometimes if you give people a job too quickly that they can't fulfill, the downfall is very painful. So God told them, that's an ideal, that's a good idea, but but sometimes the people need to work first to, you know, become a holy nation before they can look outwards and help the rest of the world to reach God. Adina, that's a really powerful idea. I think that if I could sort of paraphrase it, that we have this idea that within our own internal social structure, we have the different strata of society and we have our own Kohanim. And there's this broader vision that we will be able to serve in that role for humanity. But God realizes sort of pretty close to the beginning that we're not ready for that mission. I think it's also very, very it's very understandable why it shows up in Yeshayahu, right? Yeshayahu has these end of days visions. These are not things that that we're going to be uh, realized, certainly not in his time. And I guess we'd have to think more whether or not it's coming true in our times. Uh, but that this is an idea that, again, it's an ideal to strive for in the future. But before we can get to that place, we really have to first work on those uh, those traits within ourselves, within our own community. I'll also just throw out an idea that we saw in our episode with uh, with Professor Josh Berman, that the idea of Segula it really underscores this idea of, of monotheism, meaning it means to be one partner of, as we, we saw on that episode, and Kadosh in the Torah, which we'll probably spend many episodes trying to unpack this idea. But certainly one piece of it is to also be somewhat separate and also to fulfill all the mitzvot that bring us to that level of separateness or of uniqueness. And so we first have to work on those back aspects of our relationship, both our theological closeness with God and our individual observance before we can sort of look around and see what sort of universal vision we have. Adina, thank you so much for this conversation. You always have really interesting insights and an ability to think broadly about Tanakh. And I really appreciate that in a partner in conversation. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.